This is the parsha that contains my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Exodus chapter 16 verse 36 says, An omer is a tenth of an ephah. Period. It's a very relevant piece of information for us because if it didn't say that, we probably would have no idea that an omer is a tenth of an ephah. I have to admit, I don't actually know exactly what those dry measures are nonetheless because I'm a couple um, steps removed from that culture. But I just thought, well, that's interesting. That's a little verse at the end as a footnote that is meant something to them. Okay, um, my grandfather had a radio station in the early 50s. He was a Baptist evangelist and pastor in North Battleford. And the name of his radio station was News for the Nation. And I I have some recordings of some of his preaching, and I've listened to them and really enjoyed them. But uh, I have today what I think I would call a couple messages for the movement. As I read through the parasha with Genevieve and Tirza on Tuesday, and as I began prayerfully uh, inquiring of Abba what he wanted me to communicate today, he emblazoned a couple things on my heart that I feel are not only for us as a Messianic Jewish congregation, but for the broader movement also. So we're going to look at those first, and then we'll go back to the beginning here. In uh, chapter 13, verse 19 of the book of Shemot, Exodus, we have a verse that says, Moshe took the bones of Yosef with him. Everybody say, the bones of Yosef. For he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, Elohim will surely visit you. And you shall carry my bones from here with you. This is a word for us as a movement. The bones of Yosef are a picture of something very important for us. See, just like Moses was bringing the people of Israel out from under Pharaoh's thumb, out from under the control of the enemy, out of the global, shall we almost say, superpower of the day, the economic system, and he was bringing them out into the wilderness to meet the living God. And he did it in the midst of spectacular phenomena. I mean, it wasn't like our God just kind of snuck in and whisked them away. He, he made a, a big to-do about it. It was a major confrontation. And he showed all the false gods up for what they were. False. And he's doing that today. He's bringing his people out He's bringing them into the wilderness, you could say, where it's more just him and us, and our focus is on him. And it's there that he can give us his Torah, that he can express his heart to us. And if we uh, we read several weeks ago two places in the book of Jeremiah that talk about how there will be a future exodus that will dwarf the historical exodus from Egypt. And it won't just be a spiritual one, it'll be a literal, physical exodus from the nations of the world back to the land of Israel. That has already started, beginning in the 1880s with the uh, first waves of the Zionist movement, but it has not yet culminated. In fact, I don't even think we've seen the greater half of it yet. But there are these two passages in Jeremiah that talk about this. There's another one, it's graphic, it's explicit. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter... 20, specifically verses 33 to 38. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but I do strongly encourage you to read it at home, especially verses 33 to 38. It basically indicates that, yes, there will be a time when once again Yahweh will, in the prototypical pattern of the historical exodus from Egypt, stretch out his hand, bring his people out of the nations, and take them back to the land of Israel. However, it says specifically, they're not all going to make it to the land of Israel. On the way, he is going to enter into judgment with his people. He's going to purge the rebels and the transgressors from their midst. This has not happened yet. That tells us that there are some great things that are yet to happen for the people of Elohim. Um, I don't have them written here, but I had them. I listed them a couple of weeks ago. Yes, one is in Jeremiah 16. You're right. So that's just to say that. Right. <laughs> Maybe he's touching our hearts already to resolve that if that's an issue. So um, anyway, there's this parallel. So there are lessons in the historical exodus from us. We always also read that 
in Shaul, in Paul's first lesson to the believers in Corinth, he said, these things that happened to our forefathers, when they came out of Egypt, when they, were, uh, they went through the Sea of Reeds, etc., they happened as an example for us. They happened to in- give us instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, if Paul believed that his generation of believers were those upon whom the ends of the ages had come, then we must be the generation upon whom the end of the end of the ages has come, if that makes sense. Therefore, the Torah is more than just historical documentation. It's more than just some good suggestions. It's more than just great stories and literature. The Torah is a survival manual for the future. The Torah is the best survival manual you can get. And there is an important lesson in this concept of bringing the bones of Joseph with us when we leave Egypt. Who does Joseph most picture prophetically? Yeshua. Yeshua is the son of Joseph. Joseph is the suffering servant. Uh, The list goes on and on. We had a thrilling time exploring that as we went through those parshas. So, the bones of Joseph somehow symbolize Yeshua. Now, what do bones symbolize in Hebrew? This is interesting. The first time this term bones comes up is in the passage where Adam was alone and Elohim said this is not good, so he knocked him out and he took a rib out of him and he created, literally he built a woman out of the rib. And Adam wakes up and he says, this is bone of my bones. Etzem me'atzemai. And you could kind of read that and be like, Adam was like, whoa, look at this. He just yanked a rib out of me and he built this beautiful thing out of a bone. That's not the idea there. The idea, it's, it's something very deep and it's actually profound because the Hebrew word for bone also means essence. So what Adam was saying was, this woman is essence of my essence. And similarly, as Yeshua's bride, we are essence of his essence. There's a spiritual thing going on here with that. So, the bones of Joseph means the essence of Joseph. And similarly, by the way, this isn't a literal thing, right? This is a drosh. This is a deeper interpretation. Just have to put that plug in. So, the bones of Joseph and the bones... Similarly, it's talking about when we follow the Father and a movement of His Holy Spirit to take the essence of Messiah with us. In other words, don't leave Yeshua behind. Take Him with you. Because, in fact, He's the one taking you with Him. And this is a very relevant word for us in the Messianic movement. To take the essence of who Yeshua is with us. And to hold Him close. Um, Beloved, I give to you a new covenant commandment from Shaul, from Paul. By this time, he is a sagely emissary of Messiah. He's writing to his chief protege, Timothy. And he says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8, Remember. What does remember mean in the Hebrew understanding again? Remember means to observe. When Elohim remembered Noah, does that mean Noah just came to his mind? He acted on his behalf. That's correct. It means to act on your behalf. So with that understanding, let's hear what Paul has to say to us. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Remember Yeshua the Messiah, risen from the dead, Ben David, the son of David, according to my good news, my gospel. This is an instruction in the New Covenant, a critical one. Remember Yeshua the Messiah. Act on his behalf. And remember him according to the message that was committed specifically to his emissary, Shaul. We cannot leave Paul out of the picture in the Messianic movement. Because when we do, to the degree we do, we also end up leaving the one who sent him, namely Yeshua, out of the picture also. Heaven forbid. So, I have four simple action points here for us as a congregation as we move into the future, and us as a movement, for how we can do this. How we can remember Yeshua the Messiah on an action level which is the Hebraic understanding. Number one, with every parasha that you read, every passage from the Torah, ask yourself this question. How does this point to Yeshua? How is Messiah the ultimate fulfillment of this concept? 
Can I see, how can I see this mitzvah, this, this behavioral commandment? How can I see Yeshua living this out? How does this point me to his heart? Because when we read the Torah with the, with the heart to have a vision of Messiah from it, it will come to life. It will be filled with meaning. And it will leap off the page. And we will be inspired to do the same commandments in the Torah that our Messiah did. So that's the first thing we can do. Just remembering that the truth is a person. That the Torah in its ultimate form is a man. A Jewish man. A rabbi with a beard. And his name is Yeshua. He said, I am the truth. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with Elohim. And the Word was Elohim. And he became flesh. And he dwelt among us. So we, 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 we always remember that. Truth isn't just mental assent. Truth isn't just a list of facts. Truth isn't just an open mind to examine anything that we feel like. Truth is a person. And when we, tru- when we, when we truly know truth is when we come to know him personally. And he is the lover of our souls. He is our heavenly bridegroom. He betrothed us to himself. And so when we read the Torah, when we midrash, above all, we want to encounter him. That's the objective of this whole thing. That's number one action point. Number two is don't only read the Torah portions, read the New Covenant portions also. We're strong in that area as a congregation, and I've been intentional about that. I really appreciate the initiative that the First Fruits of Zion Ministry has taken in this regard. Uh, They give out this nifty free little brochure called Torah Portions. Some of you might even have it. And uh, yeah, Wayne, could I just show everybody that? They give out this nifty little brochure, Torah portions. You can call their office and get one for free. They'll mail it to you. And it doesn't only have the Torah and the Haft Torah portions, it also has the Brit Chadashah portions, which is why we read through them like this. And I really appreciate how they've taken that initiative to uh, help us realize that just as the Torah is foundational to our faith, so are the Gospels and the Book of Acts foundational to our New Covenant faith. Number three, remember your core identity. Your core identity is not as a Messianic Jew or Gentile. It's not as a Torah-observant Ephraimite or a Messianic Karaite, heaven forbid, or anything else, even though maybe this does describe you sometimes. Your chief identity is not as someone who uses the sacred name or someone who circumlocutes. Your Chief identity is not as a supporter of this messianic ministry or a follower of that messianic teacher or a member of that messianic organization. Some people get really nitpicky about this stuff. This is an ancient trend. Remember the Corinthians? Well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Cephas. And Paul said, what is going on? Has Messiah been divided? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? Sometimes I want to ask some people that in the Messianic movement. Why are you so fixated on this teacher or that ministry? Who is this all about for you? Our core identity, rather, is a a disciple of Yeshua. Everybody say, I'm a disciple of Yeshua. Our core identity is slaves of the Master. This is about Him. And... Our core identity as a congregation is as the bride of Melach HaMashiach, the coming Messianic King. That is our core identity. Who you are is wrapped up in who He is. And who we really are as a Messianic community will only be seen as He's revealed in our midst for who He really is. So who we really are is not really seen until who he really is, is revealed in our lives. That's our objective. That was something he just emblazoned on my heart on Tuesday. Just to speak for us as a congregation, and also for us as a movement, a broader movement. Number four, action point. Remember that Messiah's version of the Torah is sometimes different than the current Orthodox Jewish version. Now, I honor the Jewish people for how they have held the standard of Torah high through the centuries, in the midst of great persecution, facing martyrdom, um, in the face of horrific atrocities, they have not forsaken the Torah. They have held that standard high. And so we honor the Jewish community historically for that. 
But there's also room in the Jewish world for questioning stuff, for having your own opinion, for having different applications of Torah. Even Yeshua. I mean, halachically, he came very close in his application of the Torah to being a Pharisee. Just talking halachically here. But he also took issue with them on some things. So it's okay for us to do that too. Um, here are some examples of how we can remember that Messiah's version of the Torah is sometimes a little different than the rabbinic one. Uh, the names of the calendar months. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Originally, the calendar months were just called month one, month two, month three. We even read that in the Parsha. One of the first commandments given when the people of Israel were free was, okay, you're on my calendar now. We're going to be going with my schedule. Elohim speaking, of course. This is going to be the first month of the year for you. And unfortunately, we, when we call them by the names that the Jewish people picked up in the 70-year exile from Babylon, we sometimes forget that. And it becomes especially disturbing when we, for instance, call the fourth month of the year Tammuz after a pagan god. That's not acceptable. Um, here, another example would be the laws of postponement on the current Orthodox Jewish calendar. One of the laws that were introduced in the three or four hundreds was a festival Sabbath like Yom Kippur, or the first and last days of unleavened bread, for instance, they can't fall on a Friday or a Sunday. That's called the laws of postponement. Now, this was never mentioned in the scriptures. This was not practiced in Messiah's time. This was a later innovation that I believe should not have happened. Who are we to say, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, Yom Kippur, can't fall on a Friday or on a Sunday? I don't believe anyone has the authority to do that. Um, a couple other little examples. Blessing God who commanded us to wash our hands. This is a very strong tradition in the Jewish world. God did not command you to wash your hands before you eat. It's a great idea. You should wash your hands before you eat. But don't say thanks God for commanding us to do this, because he didn't. Um, another example that, uh, that often, you know, in our desire to embrace the Shabbat and to honor it in, the, in accordance with some of the beautiful Jewish traditions is a little blessing that some people say before lighting the candles. Now, we light the Sabbath candles in our household. We light the two candles before sundown. Genevieve like, prays. And it's just a beautiful picture of setting apart the Sabbath, of ushering the light of heaven into our household. It's one of my favorite moments of the week. And I, I like it. But there's a little problem with this. In the Orthodox Jewish world, the lady of the household lights the candles and she says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to kindle the Sabbath lights. Now, you cannot find it in the scriptures that God commanded you to light the Sabbath candles. He did not. It's a beautiful tradition. We do it, but we don't bless him for commanding us to do that because when we do, we're blessing a God who doesn't exist because he never commanded you to do that. Right? So there's some, there's some really nice messianic adaptations. Um, you can say, blessed are you who has call, commanded us to be a light to the world or a light to the nations. You can say, blessed are you who has commanded us to let our light so shine so that people would see our mitzvot, our observance of his commandments, our good works, and glorify our Father who's in heaven. There's some really nice adaptations out there. I can share some of those with you later. But that's another example of how Messiah's version of the Torah is a little different than the Orthodox Jewish one. And again, I honor the Jewish people and how they have upheld the Torah. When we go to the Torah, when we look at individual commandments, Judaism should be our essential point of reference. We should say, how have the Jewish people traditionally handled this mitzvah? They've been doing it for thousands of years. They, they know what they're doing usually. And they have beautiful ways of expressing that. Um, basically, with regards to Messiah's Torah, anything that isn't life-giving is not Messiah's version of the Torah. And you can sense that in your spirit. Anything that isn't love-based is not Messiah's version of the Torah. Anything that doesn't bring freedom isn't Messiah's version of the Torah. And by freedom, I don't mean today's version of freedom, which is you can do whatever you want and you will not suffer the consequences, nor will the people around you. And God doesn't really care what you do as long as it feels right. That is not freedom. Biblical freedom is the freedom to obey Him, the freedom to do His commandments with the right motivation. So that's the kind of freedom we're talking about. I think Yeshua's brother Yaakov or James was in touch with this. In the first chapter of his letter, he talked about the Torah being a mirror. And he kind of went out of his way to qualify what he's talking about. He talked about, what does it say? Uh, NASB, I think, says the perfect law that brings liberty. He talks about the complete Torah that brings freedom. When we read the Torah in the Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit of holiness, when we read the Torah with that heart to encounter our bridegroom Yeshua and to imitate him in discipleship, 
That's the complete Torah. And that will bring freedom to your life. That was uh, the first area that I felt was a real message to us as a movement. The second one is about Miriam. And this is especially for the ladies in our congregation and for the sisters in, our congr- in the broader movement. Miriam is one of the greatest heroes in the Torah. She was Moshe's older sister. She saved his life. She was a fast-thinking girl. Uh, she wasn't a scare- scared to cha- challenge the cultural norms uh, for the sake of bringing life. Um, she was also a woman who could really dance it up in her 80s. That's pretty impressive. We see her here in her 80s. Um, leading the, the women of Israel and singing this song that Moshe just prophetically sang. And they're just like dancing on the seashore with tambourines and they're singing and celebrating and exalting Elohim. And it's notable that some of the people who were closest to the Master in his lifetime were named Miriam. His mother was named Miriam. Usually translated Mary. Uh, then there was Miriam of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. Then there was the other Miriam, who anointed his uh, head before his crucifixion. So you can see that he was surrounded by disciples named Miriam. There's a connection here between Miriam, the sister of Moshe, Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, disciples of Yeshua. It's telling us there's something deeper here. Number one, the Torah is close to Messiah's heart. Miriam and Moshe picture the Torah. Um, also, Miriam is a hero to every Messianic woman. And I want to point out the good side to Miriam and also the bad side. Her potential for good and also her potential for damage because she had both in her. And I think there's a lesson there. Um, we just saw how Miriam, her strength was in her ability to celebrate what Elohim was doing, to exalt him in praise, to, to break free and dance and in worship and in playing tambourines. We even had a tambourine here, in here that Linda brought somewhere. Things like that. And that's true for you ladies also. This is your strength, your ability to break free in worship, your ability to praise the Most High, your ability to just celebrate with all your heart and bring joy to the assembly. I have to admit, like, the sisters in our congregation, I appreciate you. You're life-giving. You bring joy to our hearts. Thank you for doing that. And that's also true on a broader level for us as a movement. There's another side to Miriam, though. Miriam's name can mean one of two things. It can be either an Egyptian name that means girl, or it can have to do with someone who is bitter. (laughs) You remember Naomi chose the name Mara because of her bitter experiences. Some people suspect that may have been the root of Miriam's name also because the people of Israel were suffering bitter experiences when she was born. Therefore, her name could have reflected their experience. Um, Miriam did have a time in her life when she turned bitter. The negative side to her got the better of her. And we'll read that later and we'll go into more detail. But it's where she didn't like Moshe's choice of a wife. From all appearances, he married a woman from Africa who probably had darker skin. And Miriam had some personal issues with this. So, of course, it erupted in some kind of like pseudo-religious objection. She made up some spiritual excuse, but really, this, you know. Anyway, the result was she got struck with leprosy. And the whole camp was on hold for seven days. Extremely embarrassing for her. And there was a big lesson in that. We're going to go into more detail with that. But the, uh, the point of that is that Miriam had the potential to build people up and to encourage and to just, just to spread joy and to bring people into the presence of the Father. But she also had the potential to tear people down. She had the potential to be a gossiper and a verbal character assassinator. Um, Miriam's challenge, therefore, was just to stay in her calling, to stay in the potential that was imbued in her spirit for worship and for building people up. Her challenge was to control her tongue and use it to glorify the Holy One and not cut people down, to talk about how great her God was and not talk about how bad people were. How many of you know, people can be bad. Always been that way. So that's, that's a lesson in there for us with Miriam. And I, of course it applies to us guys too, I think. Okay, third thing that applies to us as a congregation and as a movement, we're going to read the last section of this parasha, uh, chapter 17, verses 8 to 15. It's a, it's a combat narrative. Something we learn here is when 
the Almighty is doing something with his people, the enemy will be there to resist it. He will be there to pick off the stragglers. He's relentless. And the conclusion of this story about Israel's battle with Amalek is that Yahweh will be at war with Amalek all the time, from generation to generation. In other words, this thing hasn't gone away. And it's notable what made the difference in this battle. It wasn't how sharp Joshua's sword was. It wasn't their uh, helicopters that came in and just blew those Amalekites to smithereens. It wasn't high-tech warfare or uh, even human strength. When Moses lifted up the staff of authority that Elohim gave him, then a shift happened in the spiritual world and the Israelites had the upper hand. When Moses' hands got tired and they began to droop, then something happened in the spiritual world and the Amalekites began to win. This is a dynamic that continues to be true today. What does Moses lifting up his hands signify? I think it signifies quite a few things. Uh, probably the most popular interpretation would be worship. When we worship with all our hearts, when we lift our hands to the Father in praise, then he is enthroned on the praises of Israel. Those high praises in our mouth are uh, uh, an avenue through which he brings judgment on the adversary. Yes, this is true. But there's another explanation that fits the Jewish culture better and one that we're not familiar with if we come from a church background. Does anybody know what the two, like, dowels on a Torah scroll are called? Or what they picture? They picture the staff of Moses. So there's, there's a connection between the staff of Moses being hoisted up and the Torah being lifted. That when the Torah is lifted in our lives through obedience and diligent study, then the enemy is routed. When we just let our Bibles collect dust, or when we only read the last fifth of the Scriptures, the New Testament, when we say, oh, all that Old Testament stuff doesn't apply today, it's all done away with, don't talk to me about it, then we are letting Satan have a field day with us as a body of Messiah. And one of the things that the Father is doing in the body of Christ today is he is raising up the Messianic movement to say, this is an area of our faith and practice that was lost. And he is calling us to return to it so that we can thoroughly trump the enemy and so we can establish his kingdom in Prince Albert. You might not think of it this way, but you know, when we do Shabbat, when we have family time on Arab Shabbats, when we, when we study the Torah together and we, we uh, dance like we do, this is spiritual warfare going on too. Maybe you don't see it, but you're lifting up the staff of Moshe and down there on the front lines, who knows, maybe in the penitentiary, maybe uh, in some drug house, there's, there is a spiritual light that's breaking out. And the Father's kingdom is being advanced. Uh, something cool, actually, that's done in the synagogue tradition that we don't do because we don't have a Sefer Torah, a Torah scroll, is after the reading, they go, and you, you get a guy with pretty big arms to do this. I've been in the synagogue. And you go, he goes over to the bima, and he takes the Torah scroll, and he hoists it up like that. And he holds it as wide as he can. And the bigger and stronger the guy, the wider he can hold it, so you can see more of the Torah. And then he turns around like this, and you can see the pages that you just read, and then they, they sing a song, Vizot Torah, and that is a picture of exalting the Torah in our lives, and also the giver of the Torah. We, we're reminded of Yeshua who said, when I'm what? Lift it up. I will what? Draw all people to myself. So there is a connection between giving the Torah the place that it has in our lives as believers, and also exalting Yeshua. All right, let's go, uh, let's go to the next section of my teaching here. In Mark chapter 6, we see the master uh, walking back to his hometown with his band of disciples. He's got a pretty impressive array of miracles under his belt. Uh, he's been traveling and teaching. He's relatively famous now across the land of Israel. And on Shabbat, as is his custom, he goes into the synagogue. He stands up to read just like we do. Afterwards, I, I suppose he had enough renown as a teacher that 
they invited him to teach. So we started teaching, and these, these guys, it was just not computing for them. There was some serious gear grinding going on in their brains. They were like, this guy, where did he get this miraculous stuff from? Where did this wisdom come from? Isn't this the son of the carpenter? Isn't this Miriam's boy? I mean, we know this guy's brothers and sisters. This, and uh, it says they stumbled at him because of that. They just couldn't get over it. And in Luke's account, we read that that wasn't where it ended. He ended up confronting their religious bigotry they ended up freaking out and trying to kill him, and he escaped. Not a good ending to this story. The connection, though, is that just as there were people like that in Yeshua's hometown, there were people like that in the people of Israel, and they, uh, they looked at Moses the same way. What was the core of these people's problem? What, was, what caused their inability to receive Messiah and see him for who he was? Well, their problem was they were not spiritually minded. They weren't seeing things as the Father saw them from his perspective. They were seeing things from their own perspective. They were physically minded. They reasoned in their hearts. And therefore, they just didn't get it, even though it was right there in front of their face. That's me, too. I'm so prone to doing that. Maybe that's all of us. So, we see that also in this parsha in uh, chapter 16. Verse 7, Exodus 16, 7. These people are complaining at Moses, as though Moses was, had cooked up this whole plan, to re, this whole rescue operation. Moses answers, In the morning you'll see the glory of Yahweh, for he hears your grumblings against Yahweh. And what are we that you're grumbling against us? Moses was like, why are you grumbling against us? <laughs> it's about him. Uh, also in chapter 17, verse 2. It says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moshe and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moshe said to them, Why are you quarreling with me? Why are you testing Yahweh? Something I really admire about Moses is how he was such a God-centered man. Like if someone came to him with a complaint against him, he just immediately pointed it to the Almighty. This guy had no like reputation that he felt he had to protect. And I, I admire that about him. I, I want to be more like that too. So here we see in the Mark passage and in the Exodus passage, people who are not spiritually minded. And they're not seeing things from God's perspective. And the result in mo- both situations is disaster. And you're going to encounter people like this in your life. You're going to encounter maybe people from your past who want to define you by past mistakes you've made or who they knew you as 20, 30, 40 years ago. Just like Yeshua did. Do you know what Yeshua's solution to the problem was? He moved. <laughs> he moved from Nazareth to Capernaum. <laughs> that was his solution. It was like, these people couldn't understand him. They couldn't get over the past. So he moved. And there is a time when the Father invites us to just move on and find people who will look at you for who you are in Messiah, who will encourage you for your potential in the kingdom, who will challenge you and spur you on. I pray that we as a congregation can do that for each other. And I, I have to say on a personal note too, like, I really love our group. I've been so encouraged by you guys. I, I thank you for how you've looked at me in the spirit. Thank you for how you've seen my potential. Thank you for how you've encouraged me. I mean, I am a young leader in training. Um, I, I need feedback. I need guidance. And I appreciate that from you. So I'm looking forward to growing together, working together. I'm looking forward to... Uh, uh, a, like a greater degree of core leadership happening in our group and that's going to, that's going to come along as, as the Father leads so uh, thank you for that thanks 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 I try to keep it real <laughs> if I don't please like I don't know ask Colin to come and punch me or something <laughs> okay right on what? Oh no, we just we're brothers. We grew up hitting each other. We're allowed to. <laughs> yeah. I always tell tell stop the opposite. If you if you get out of line you get a smacked bottom. Yeah, right on. That's the English word for punching you, smacked bottom. Right. <laughs> nice. Okay. So those are the three things that were really burning in our in my heart. And uh, there were there are a couple of prophetic elements I want to point out.
a couple of Hebrew insights and a couple of practical things. Uh, we'd already talked about how there is going to be a future exodus that is going to dwarf this exodus from Egypt that we read about, as per Jeremiah and Ezekiel chapter 20. In uh, chapter 13, verse 17, the first verse in this parasha, it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, Elohim didn't lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. The interesting thing is the Hebrew there can also be read, he didn't lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines because he was near. Think about this for a second. They could have just zipped out of Egypt, zipped up to the land of the Canaan, taken the land and been settled. And, you know, made comfortable lives for themselves and maybe got all wrapped up in materialism as we're prone to do. But if he had done that, if he had taken the shortcut, the easy way, there would have been no romantic encounter at Mount Sinai where he revealed himself gloriously. There would have been no books of most of Exodus, Numbers, uh, Leviticus. We would have missed such a, a massive revelation of who he is. We would have missed so many experiences where he proved himself, where he came through for the people of Israel, where he provided manna, where he showed how patient he was. When he should have, if he, if, if, if he was anybody else, shall we say, one of us, I mean, he would have freaked out long ago and killed them all. And so we, we see that there was a very relational reason for those years in the wilderness. It was because he was near. He wanted to take his bride out into the wilderness. He wanted to spend time with her before he brought her into the land of Canaan. And so it is with us. Sometimes before the Father brings us into doing powerful stuff for his kingdom, Maybe we're young believers or whatever. Um, he, before he phases us into like a big mission, sometimes he says, you know what, just come and spend a lot of time with me. Come out to the wilderness for a couple of years and just get really intimately acquainted with me. Learn to pray. Go deep in prayer. That's, that's what I get out of this, uh, this passage about the uh, other way that Exodus chapter 13 verse 17 can be read. He didn't take them by the shortcut because he was near. And he wanted to make the most of it. Um, also in chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, we read about this awesome pillar of fire. The Hebrew word there is like a pillar, a column, a whirlwind, a tornado. Can you imagine like a, 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 an inferno tornado going ahead of you? Just like burning and glowing in the nighttime and and like this massive cloud in the day that actually spreads over you and gives you shelter from that scorching Middle Eastern sun. The prophet Isaiah said in chapter 4 that this was going to happen again over the geographical region of Jerusalem, over Mount Zion. Check out chapter 4 of Isaiah sometime and you'll see that. Uh, Chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, Only in Hebrew it doesn't say, then they sang. It says, then they will sing, Az Yashir. Why does it say that Moses and the sons of Israel will sing the song to Yahweh? Because it's prophetic. Chapter 15, verse 1. We read in Revelation chapter 15, verses 2 to 4, that there is a group of people who are singing the song of Moses. I'll just read it. 15, chapter 2. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of Elohim, and they sang the song of Moshe, the bondservant of Elohim, and the song of the Lamb, saying... And you know the text for this because we sang something very close to it today during our worship time, which was intentional. So uh, we learn a couple important things from this. We learn that there is an eschatological connection between Egypt, historical Egypt, and the coming globalist beast system. We learn that there's an eschatological connection between the historical exodus from Egypt and the emergence of all the people of Israel from the one world government and economic system during the time frame of the Great Tribulation. There's a very clear connection here between the Song of Moses in Exodus 15 and the Song of Moses in Revelation 15. And the people of Israel under Moses' leadership sang it at the Sea of Reeds after Pharaoh was thoroughly trounced and permanently finished. 
And there is a group of people who will be victorious over the beast, whatever the beast is. I don't necess- I'm not even saying. I'm just saying whatever it's going to be, there are going to be people who are going to be victorious over it. And they're going to sing the song of Moses. So there's a strong parallel there. And Yeshua is going to be our Moses, who leads us in triumph in the future. Amen. That was the message paraphrase, right? I like how it phrases that. Um, that, that scripture about him marrying us is a scripture that is said by observant Jewish males, including myself, when we bind tefillin, when we put in our phylacteries. Because tefillin are like the, what this is. Between the, this uh, wedding ring, what this picture is between Genevieve and me, tefillin, phylacteries, picture between us and him. I'll, I'll bring mine sometime and we'll do a demo, maybe for the passage that mentions them. Thank you. Okay, a couple of Hebrew insights. Get ready, because I'm going to throw these at you pretty fast. <laughs> um, what's Jesus' Hebrew name? Yeshua. What does Yeshua mean? Salvation. salvation. Did you notice the times that it talks about salvation in this parasha? Uh, chapter 14, verse 13. Moses says, Stand still and see the Yeshua of Yahweh. The salvation of the Lord. Uh, chapter 14, verse 30 says, Vayosha Yahweh, and Yahweh saved the people of Israel. And then uh, chapter 15, verse 2 also uses that word. This is, this is a passage that points to Yeshua. This is a picture of the salvation that we experience in Him. It's a complete salvation. It is a final salvation. Pharaoh and his army are gone for good when we are immersed in Messiah and in the spirit of holiness, the Ruach HaKodesh. Uh, chapter 16, this is interesting. The New American Standard Bible is on to something here. Uh, Abba uses the word Torah a couple times in reference to his instructions about the manna, when to gather it, when not to. And uh, the New American Standard Bible, in chapter 16, verses 4 and verses 28, actually translate that word as instruction. They translate Torah as instruction. Good on them. Chapter 15, verse 4 Here's something interesting. Uh, the Hebrew word Torah. Uh, just recently in our Hayasoda class, we learned what it means. It has three different meanings. Can anyone remember those? The root is Yara. What does Yara mean? <coughs> to aim or point. That's right. As in aiming or pointing an arrow. Hit the yeah, to hit the target. Sure. That's the result. To send rain. Because rain is something that you send that he casts down. Um, and to teach. That is correct. There are two interesting usages of the verb yara in here. I just wanted to point them out to you so that you can get a fuller understanding of what the Torah is all about. Chapter, six, no, chapter 15, verse 4. Says, <clears throat> Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he has yarad into the sea cast into the sea. It's the same word. It's like he shot them into the sea like as, as with an arrow. What that tells me is there is a connection between God's salvation in our lives and his Torah. If we're dealing with issues, let's say addictions or emotional problems or just plain sin or maybe you just, oh, sometimes your family member just irritates you and you blurt stuff out that you wish you didn't say. All of this stuff, whatever. What this is saying is, that stuff's like Pharaoh, right? That's like Pharaoh's influence, his control, which ultimately, of course, is from the enemy. And the Torah, when it comes in, and we're not just talking about the first five books, we're talking about the New Covenant Torah also. The Messiah's complete Torah. This is the solution. When we apply the Torah to our lives, when he does through the power of his Holy Spirit, Bye-bye, Pharaoh. Um, There's one more interesting usage of that in chapter 15, verse 25. It says, Then he cried out to Yahweh with regards to the bitter waters, and Yahweh showed him a tree, and he yarod it. He threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. So here we have Pharaoh and his army, Yarah, cast into the sea. Here this, uh, this tree is cast or thrown into the waters and it becomes sweet. I'm going to say something about that in just a moment to, to finish off uh, our talk here. Chapter 17, verse 12. This is a cool one. Exodus 17, verse 12. 
It's about the battle with Amalek in the midst of the fierce combat. It says that when Moses' hands grew heavy and the Amalekites began to win, then they lifted up Moses' hands and they were steady. Guess what the Hebrew word there for steady is? Emunah. His hands were emunah. What does emunah usually translate it as? Faith. Did you know that? Sure. Uh, chapter Exodus. I think so. 17 verse 12. Yeah. Oh, no problem. Exodus seventeen twelve. It says, Moshe's hands were steady, they were emunah. This is the word, the Greek equivalent of this word is pistis, or however you pronounce that. My Greek is very rusty, and that's the word translated as faith in the New Testament. This is very significant. Our Western understanding of faith is giving mental assent to something. It's verbally agreeing with a creed. It's, uh, it's you know, what do you think in your mind, Right? And the result often is we're so fixated on that that we end up church splits all over the place over minor points of doctrine. This is not the original biblical understanding of faith. The biblical understanding of faith is faithfulness, emunah, steadiness. So it's not just giving mental assent to something. It's not just verbally agreeing with a creed. It's living a life of steady faithfulness to God and His Word. And that applies to our home life, to our business situations, to congregation. It applies to everything. It's a much broader view of faith and also a much more practical one. That's right. Chapter 14, verse 3. Sorry, 15, um, 15 verse 2. It says, Yahweh is my strength and song, and he has become my Yeshua. And uh, there's a phrase in there, Zimrat Yah. Yah is my song. And that's the name of our Messianic youth camp. Uh, we had Canada's first week-long summer Messianic youth camp in southern Saskatchewan uh, last week of August last year. It was an amazing time. We had over 60 people come out and we were planning for this upcoming year. That's the name of the camp, Zimrat Yah. So this parsha really resonates in my heart because I believe that it's a prophetic parsha for us as a Messianic community in this province and also for a younger generation of believers. Um, we do have a website actually with all of the teachings and messages that were given at Cam Zimrat Yah from last year. If you want to check it out, um, I'll send you the link. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just going to touch on a, pr- a couple of practical aspects from this parsha, and we'll finish. Um, there's this Hebrew word halacha. It means how you do the Torah, how you apply it to your life. It literally means it's from the word halach to walk. So it's how you walk out the word, right? Halacha. And uh, this was the word that was in Yochanan, John's mind, in 1 John chapter 2. Verses 3 to 7. I'm going to read the whole whole thing because we want to get the context here. But we're specifically keying in on verse 5. By this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his mitzvot, his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him, and doesn't keep his mitzvot, is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of Elohim has truly been completed. By this we know that we're in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk, that's the Hebrew word halacha, in the same manner as he walked, halacha. Which mitzvot, which commandments are he talking about? Oh, look at this, the next verse, he clarifies. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you've had from Bereshit, from the book of Genesis, from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you've heard. And then he goes on to say, I am writing a new commandment to you. But his point here is when he's talking about mitzvot, when he's talking about God's commandments, he's not just talking about new covenant mitzvot. He's talking about the word that we have had from the beginning, from the book of Genesis and on, from Bereshit, the Hebrew word for Genesis. This is profound. This is a contextual understanding of the book of John. 
and when we read it with this mindset, it's revolutionary. It really helps us understand discipleship. Specifically, verse, uh, verse 6, I like this. He says, you know, if we want to like dwell deep in Messiah, if we want to have that abiding in his presence, if we want to walk closely with him, then it's incumbent upon us to have the same halakha as he did, to have the same application of Torah to our lives as he did, to walk as he did. That's the Hebraic understanding. So that's why I'm kind of laying some more groundwork here so we can understand God's commandments in the Torah. So we have a context in which to read them. That's why we're going to be focusing this year as we read through the Torah on practical applications of the commandments because we want to have the same halakha as the Master did. Everybody say, halakha. Great. Okay, we learn a couple interesting little things about Shabbat from the Manna episode, chapter 15, verse 23, of the book of Exodus. Says, I'll forget that. Um, let's try 16:23. Yeah, there it is. Basically, what we learn from Exodus chapter 16, verse 23, is okay. If you have chosen to honor the Father's Sabbath, the biblical Sabbath from Friday evening to Saturday evening. Here's a little pointer for how to do it in the best way you can. Now, this, I'm not talking legalism here, okay? I'm talking about if you have chosen to do this. If this is something you're doing because you want to follow Messiah's example with this, right? I'll give you a little pointer. Um, Moshe points out, have your food preparation finished before Shabbat if possible, before sundown on Friday evening. He says, do your baking and your boiling and all that stuff on, on Friday. That way, you'll have a full 24-hour block of time that you can just totally devote to him. It's very romantic. So you can spend that whole 24 hours with Messiah and not have to worry about all the food preparation and cooking and stuff. Now, I have to admit, I make myself a cup of coffee on Shabbat morning before we go, and I do boil the water. <laughs> I flip on our electric kettle and I boil the water. I, I hope that's okay. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, we're at different places with that. Um, and... Also, chapter 15, verse 26. This is the second of the three points of halakha. Um, It's this passage about healing. He promises healing in the covenant. He says he's not going to put the diseases of Egypt on us. But he doesn't make it like an unconditional promise here. He makes a conditional promise. He says, "If if you listen really closely to me, if you do what's right, if you... Pay attention to my commandments. Then, this is what I'll do for you. This is very important for the body of Messiah to hear today because we are often guilty of misappropriating this word. I'll give you an example. If you drink a shot glass of turpentine every day, do you think it might affect you? (laughs) When you're sick to your stomach and your insides are beginning to rot out, You can pray for healing, and the Father actually might heal you, and that would be wonderful. But if you keep drinking your shot glass of turpentine every day, the healing is not going to last very long. There's this fundamental principle in the universe that some things were made to be eaten, and some things weren't made to be eaten. Turpentine was not made to drink, as an example. There are also certain species of animals that the Father has created as the garbage men of nature. They go around and they eat up all those maggot-ridden carcasses on the edge of the road and animal excrement and all kinds of gross stuff like that. Um, Among their numbers are the the pig. Um, In the ocean you have shellfish like shrimp and things like this. Uh, The father, you know, he kind of goes out of his way several times in the Torah to say, guys, I don't want you to eat that stuff. It's not because I'm a legalistic God. I just know it's best for you. And there are certain things that are just not food. So don't pretend they are, because they might have an adverse effect on your health. <laughs> All right? We're not talking legalism here, right? We're just asking, like, okay, why did Abba say for his people to do certain things? Why did he say that it's best to eat with certain diet? Well, because it will result in your health. Maybe this is the contextual understanding of this promise for healing. The fact is, most of the sicknesses we bring on ourselves, we bring upon ourselves because of bad dietary choices. That's not always the case. And I'm, I'm not saying that if anyone's sick, we should ever judge that person. That is not our place. But what I'm saying is in our personal lives, it doesn't hurt to stop and examine our dietary choices and the things we eat led into our temples and just maybe try and ask the question, what would Jesus do? And then go with that, because we actually know what Jesus would do. It's what Jesus did do. 
<laughs> um, yes, that would be great. Okay, Peter had a vision about this net being let down. And if you read the Greek there, it's probably a tolit that he saw being let down by the four corners, i.e. the tzitzit, which is very symbolic because the tolit represents God's word. The tzitzit on the corners, like these things, they represent living a life in the parameters of his word. And what did Peter see in the sheet? He saw both clean and unclean animals. And he heard the voice from heaven saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, By no means, I've never eaten anything unclean or unholy. And you know the rest of the story. What God has cleansed, don't call unclean or unholy. Right? Now, notably, there were clean animals in that sheet. He didn't have to eat the the octopus or whatever, right? With its tentacles going out the side. He could have eaten the sheep in the tuli, right? If that was the point of the vision or whatever. But it wasn't. If we look at the context of that, Peter was affected deeply by a non-biblical tradition. There was some Jewish, you almost could call it racism going on. He wouldn't even eat with a Gentile. He wouldn't even go into a Gentile's house. God never said that that was the way things were supposed to be. That was traditions of men, right? But this was ingrained so deeply in his psyche that when God wanted to cause the good news to break out and go to the nations, he had to somehow break this mental stronghold in Peter's mind. And so he comes to him in this trance and he does it. So the big question is, why did God give Peter that vision? And what did he say the application of it was? Well, we, we know from the context that God gave Peter that vision to break that thing in his psyche so that he would realize it's okay to go to this Gentile, Cornelius' house. It's okay. And sure enough, that was what Peter explicitly said twice after that. He said, God has shown me that I should call no man unholy or unclean. Remember this. So he wasn't saying, you know what, guys? God just showed me that even though, uh, you know, Yeshua said the Torah is forever and he didn't come to do away with it, and even though Yeshua gave us this example of how to live, well, God just gave me a vision and he just told me something totally different. He, he, it wasn't about food. Peter said that very clearly. He said, God has shown me that I should call no person unclean or uncommon. And you know, sometimes, because over the centuries, we as the body of Christ have kind of we've kind of got this habit of playing fast and loose with the rules. We think that grace is, means that we can just do whatever we want. Uh, you know, we've kind of read our current interpretations of that passage anachronistically into the passage. But if you read history, there are quite a few clear quotations that the early believers, like Simon Peter and the apostles and the community that they founded, including Paul, these guys continue to structure their lives and even their dietary choices according to the, you know, the Torah, according to Yeshua's example. And I mean, we're not talking legalism here. We're not talking about doing this stuff to be saved, right? We're just talking about Yeshua did it, so it must be okay. Um, so, and I mean, like, heaven forbid that I would come to you and say, like, you should be doing this or you should be doing that. When we start thinking in should terms, then we miss the point, right? Like, the fact is, Yeshua is coming through each of our lives. He's speaking to us personally. He's illuminating the word. He's calling us to discipleship. And our job is, as he shows us something, as we see that he did this, our job is just to respond in that freedom and in that love that wells up in our heart and just imitate him, right? So this isn't the kind of thing that we judge each other about, right? But this is the kind of thing that we're sensing is something the Holy Spirit's actually saying to the church, because there are a lot of people in the church who are sick. And the reason they're sick are because of their dietary choices. And I mean, if you get sick with something and you go to the doctor, the first thing they'll say is, stop, like, usually the first thing they'll say is, like, cut pork and cut shellfish out of your diet, right? So anyway, I hope I'm not going on too long about that. My, my primary focus in life is not what I stick in my mouth. But, you know, it's, it's an item of discussion. Is that cool, Lisa? Are your thoughts? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you know, I encourage you, go and read those chapters for yourself. Don't just take it as what I say. Look at the context. See if there's anything about him going out and having a ham sandwich or whatever. For sure. And I mean, some, cult, some stuff in our culture, we're going to have to let go. The Messiah is going to lead us to do that, or at least to not hold on to it as absolute law. There are other things that are good. And I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been wonderful, Charlotte, if you could have said, you know what, my Messiah never ate pork, so I don't either. 
it's okay, you can come to my house. I mean, you know, that's, 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 what, that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the body of Messiah right now. He's bringing us to that point so that he can, we can be the hands through which he can reach the people of Israel. So that we can be a body through which he can communicate the good news in a way that makes sense. Right? One final thing that we'll leave is the last verse of our Mark passage. Mark chapter 6, verse 56 says, Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. The fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. So our Messiah, his halacha, included wearing fringes, and so should we. Let's, uh, I just wanted to explain this thing here. This is the song at the sea. And they made the text so it looks like the walls of water on either side. And the people of Israel, wave after wave, going up through the middle. So it's one of those um, fun little things in the Hebrew text that we don't get in the English one. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham. And thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.